Well, we're so pleased that you're here with us to worship this morning. I hope the time we spend here together today will bring praise and glory and honor to the name of the Lord, and I hope that all of us who are here today can can leave having been built up for the time we spend here together with one another. I want to make one more announcement. This was in the bulletin, but just to plug this, since we just got it in the bulletin and we haven't uh, announced it yet, but... Uh, Abby and I are going to be having a sort of back-to-school party for the kids Saturday, August 10th at 5 p.m. That's for sixth graders on up through even our uh, college students. If they haven't gone back to college yet for the semester, they're welcome to come too. So uh, I hope you'll put that on your calendar, kids and parents, and, and be there at 5 o'clock at our house uh, on August 10th. I think we'll have a, a good time eating together and, and hanging out. As we begin this morning, I want to read to you some familiar words. This is a passage most all of us here this morning know. It comes from the letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 4. Paul writes in verse number 11, he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Would you consider yourself to be a contented person? Honestly, ask yourself that. You don't have to tell me what the answer is. But if we really evaluated ourselves, Are we content? Are you happy with your job? Are you happy with your spouse? Do you get along all the time? Most of the time? At least some of the time? (laughs) Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're single and you're thinking, if I could just get married, then, then I would have what I want in life. Then I'd be content. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're married and you're thinking, if I were only single again, then I would be content. <laughs> what about your body? Do you get up in the morning and do you look in the mirror and do you say like the psalmist, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you, Lord. Or are you just fearful about what you see? Are you happy with your income? Do you feel that you're being paid what you're worth? Here's an interesting case study here. The average salary of a Major League Baseball player in this season, 2019, is $4.3 million a season. Now, obviously, some of the biggest stars are making almost 10 times that much. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have those uh, making that major league minimum salary just scraping by $555,000 a year. But consider this. There are a number of men who are extremely gifted, athletically talented. They have honed their craft, and they're hitting the ball One less time per week. That's what Crash Davis taught me in Bull Durham. That's the difference in hitting 250 and 300. Just that luck of one hit, just a dying quail, a ground ball with eyes. 
one less hit a week, and they're toiling away in the minor leagues, in many cases making wages below the poverty line. Hardly seems fair. Are you happy with your income? See, we see discontent all around us in every aspect of life, and I expect that we all feel it ourselves from time to time. So when we read here that Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, we ought to notice that. We should pay attention because that's highly unusual. Even more so when we consider Paul's circumstances when he writes this. He's getting old. He doesn't have any money. Where once he came from a rather well-off, prosperous family of Roman citizens. His health is beginning to decline. Where once he was strong, vigorous. Worst of all, he's in prison when he writes this. Or of course, once he was a free man. And yet in the midst of all this and probably other circumstances that we don't even know about, Paul is able to say, I've learned the secret of contentment. Let's talk together then for a few minutes this morning about some of the enemies of contentment and then some of the secrets Paul helps point us to for how we might become contented ourselves. The first enemy of contentment is unrealistic expectations. Now, we still have at least some people here in our number today who grew up at least partially during the Great Depression. Some of the rest of you, your parents grew up during the Depression. They went through some hard times. And so when you got married or when they got married, it, it took a long time to get to that point in life where you were secure. And yet, when we look at younger people these days, when people get married, they want everything right now. They expect to have all those things that it took their parents or their grandparents years and years to accumulate. You see, the level of expectation has changed. This is particularly a problem, and a great case study of this comes from the workplace and from millennials. Now, I expect all of us have been hearing about millennials for some years now. This is the generation born between approximately 1982 and the late 90s or 2000, uh, depending on what demographers talking about them here. This is my generation. And fortunately, now we're moving on to the next one, to Generation Z, so there'll be a new whipping boy in the media. But at any rate, the Journal of Psychology and Business did a study a few years ago talking about millennials' habits in the workplace. Pay is the single most important factor for motivating millennials. Now, that's not necessarily that different from anyone else. But what is different is they expect that pay regardless of their performance on the job. The same thing holds true with their grades, incidentally. Studies have borne this out, that they expect to receive A's no matter how well they actually perform at their work. They're known to complain, to get upset, 
when they don't get a raise or receive a promotion after only six months on a job. And in fact, in many cases, they'll just move on down the road to the next one if that doesn't happen. And they expect to get all of that with minimal effort. Another study in the Harvard Business Review says that they are the least engaged generation active today in the workplace. So you see, all this is a textbook example of unrealistic expectations, and it's the ethos of an entire generation. And yet, those things more generally aren't confined strictly to millennials. Sometimes people get married and they discover their spouse isn't perfect. They go to work and they find out, you know, the boss isn't perfect. Their job isn't perfect. Not all of their friends are perfect. And I think sometimes people become Christians thinking that Christians have it all together. Those Christians are perfect. And then they find out that no, Christians have problems just like everyone else does. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're going to be blessed without exception. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you're somehow now immune to any sort of temptation as all of us know all too well. And yet that's the message that we get sometimes from some of our popular preaching. Now, Paul didn't have unrealistic expectations when it came to the Christian life. If you remember the account of his conversion in Acts chapter 9, Jesus sends the preacher Ananias to him, and he says, you need to go and tell him all the things that he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. Paul is going to be this ambassador for Jesus before kings, before the Gentiles, but he's going to suffer greatly. It's the same Paul who would tell us later in Acts that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And a lot of people seem to have the idea today, and many televangelists, our popular religious books, reinforce it, that if you become a Christian, you're going to be blessed. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be prosperous. All around us, there are unrealistic expectations. That's a major source of discontentment. A second enemy of contentment is unfair comparisons. If we compare ourselves to others, we will inevitably find there's someone more attractive. There's someone who is more talented. There's someone who's better at what we do. Someone who's younger. Someone who's stronger. If I went around comparing myself to other preachers all the time, I know that there are those who are better speakers than I am, better writers than I am, more knowledgeable than I am. There might even be one that's better dressed than I am, though I find that hard to believe. He's probably out there somewhere. The point is, if we go around comparing ourselves to others in life, we're always going to be disappointed because there's always someone, and usually quite a lot of others, who are greater than us in whatever avenue we're comparing. That's why it's interesting if you consider Paul. We only find him making comparisons to others on a couple of occasions, and both times he's, he's being ironic. He's pointing out how foolish it is to make those sorts of comparisons. 
And if we look at what we know about Paul from tradition, now we can't be certain about this, but these accounts go back to the early second century. Tradition tells us that Paul was short, he had a pot belly, he had stooped shoulders, he had weak eyesight. Some think this was attributable to a disease, and in fact, maybe that's even what that thorn in the flesh was. And it makes sense when you think about that experience on the Damascus Road, being blinded by the light and the scales falling from his eyes. Paul wasn't much to look at, in other words. <laughs> and not only that, even though we know him through the power of his words and what an eloquent writer he was, evidently he wasn't very much of a public speaker. He writes about what his opponents say about him in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, and I like the way the message puts this because it really gets to the point. His letters are brawny and potent, but in person he's a weakling, and he mumbles when he talks. And that's probably not the way we think of Paul, but that's, that's the real Paul. And had he gone around comparing himself to others, I expect he would have developed quite an inferiority complex. But Paul found his source of strength in Christ. He had Christ-esteem, not self-esteem. And so he didn't make those unfair comparisons. A third enemy of contentment is unnoticed blessings. We live today in the most affluent nation in the world. We have more possessions, we have more opportunities, we have more freedoms than almost anyone else. And I'm not talking about almost anyone else in our contemporary world, I'm talking about than almost anyone else in all of human history. We are so richly blessed and yet we don't realize that because living in the midst of it, we just take it for granted. And so we are among the most dissatisfied people on earth. What researchers call deaths of despair, that's suicides, uh, drug overdoses, and deaths related to alcoholism. Those deaths of despair are largely responsible for the U.S. life expectancy decreasing three consecutive years running now. That's the first time that that's happened in over a century. And part of the problem is that generally we just don't consider our blessings. Now this is a tough question in the dog days of summer, but we have had a, a little bit of a, a cool snap, relatively speaking, this week. Air conditioning. Is that a luxury or a necessity? Now, in Texas, the summer lasts for six months. And here in southeast Texas in particular, the humidity most days is about 125%. So most of the time, it feels like it's an absolute necessity that we just couldn't survive without it. And yet, some of you grew up without it. And you survived. I don't know how you did, but you did. Air conditioning is one of those things that most of us just take for granted. We go in our house, and it might be 98 degrees outside, but we close the doors, we close the windows, we don't worry about any of that breeze, but we also don't have to worry then about anything getting in from outside in our well-insulated homes, and we crank up the A.C., and man, it just feels great in there. We don't notice it 
until it goes out. That happened to Glinda recently, I know, and she was noticing that. We have to sweat then, and it's uncomfortable, sure. But it's not absolutely essential. What about an automobile? Luxury or necessity? What about a television? Luxury or necessity? And not just a television. We need a big screen TV, probably multiples of them. We need a Blu-ray player. We need surround sound. On and on and on we could go with this. We want all these things. And yet, Paul tells us, he's writing actually to Timothy, writing about the early Christians, 2 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, and he says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We have a lot more than food and clothing. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with having more than food and clothing. But still, so very few of us are content. And that's because we always want more and more and more. We don't appreciate that all of this abundance we have is a tremendous blessing. A fourth enemy of contentment is unbridled ambition. Now, Scripture doesn't condemn ambition. In fact, it tells us to to try to do whatever we can to the best of our ability. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. But when ambition is uncontrolled, or when it just fuels our egos, then it's a problem. James puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. There's a familiar parable that helps to illustrate this. Luke chapter 12, most of us know this. Jesus is telling here about this wealthy man, a rich farmer who had a a bountiful harvest. He brought in way beyond his expectations. What was he going to do with this superabundance that he had? Well, instead of thinking about others, he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? As our text that was read a few moments ago before our sermon says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Scripture never says be content with who you are. We're constantly striving to be remade, reshaped into that image of Christ, but it says be content with what you have. Ambition is good, but we need to be ambitious for the right things. So these are just four of the reasons for discontentment or enemies of contentment, as we've called them, and this list isn't exhaustive. I imagine all of us could come up with more to add to this. But I want us to shift our attention before we close this morning to positive strategies to cultivate contentment. And there are three in particular I want us to consider. 
The first secret of contentment is to develop a grateful attitude. Now, if you read through Philippians, Paul talks about that at length in different ways. This is really one of the themes of this letter. And the point, largely, is that if you have an attitude that causes you to be grateful, to give thanks, this is a letter that's all about thanksgiving, an attitude that causes you to give thanks for what God has given you, then you'll be content. There's a story told about the 14th century German mystic Johann Thaler that I think helps to illustrate this really well. One day a, a beggar came to the church door and Thaler went out and greeted him and this fellow, was, he was covered in mud. He was just filthy. He was wearing rags. His clothes weren't worth three pennies. Thaler said, good day, my friend. The beggar answered, I've never had a bad day in all my life. Then Taller said, may God grant you prosperity. I thank God, said the beggar, that I've never known adversity. Well, then may God make you happy. I've never been unhappy, replied the beggar. Now at this point, as we all would be just generally, but especially seeing this guy's situation, Taller was confused. And so he asked him to explain himself a little more clearly. And so the beggar said, well, you bid me a good day. And I said, I've never had a bad one. In fact, when I'm hungry, I praise God. When I'm cold or it hails or it snows or it rains or it's clear or foggy, I praise God. If I'm favored or despised, I praise him equally. All this is why I've never known a bad day. You wished me prosperity, and I responded that I've never known adversity. For I've learned to live with God, and I'm certain that all he does can be naught but good. Therefore, all that happens to me that's pleasing or contrary, bitter or sweet, I receive from him as his blessing. It's being very good for me. You wished me happiness, and I responded that I've never been unhappy. For I've resolved to fix my affections only on the divine will. Hence it comes that I desire only what God desires. We might sum all that up the way that the prophet Isaiah does in chapter 26 verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. See, we can begin each and every day by saying, God, this is going to be a tough day. I hate my job. I hate my boss. I hate my spouse. I hate my family. I hate myself. On and on and on we could list and all the things that we're dreading. I don't know how in the world I'm going to make it through. Or we can get up and we can say, thank you, Lord for giving me the opportunity to wake up this morning. Thank God for life itself and really mean it. Thank you for the opportunities that you give me. Help use me today for your glory. Help me to accomplish your will in this world today, God. Help me to do something that will last for all eternity. 
A second secret to cultivating contentment is to seek to do God's will. Seek to please him. Seek to please Jesus rather than trying to please other people. That's one of our big reasons for discontentment that we didn't touch on exactly, but we spend so much of our lives trying to please others, trying to please ourselves, instead of trying to please the Lord. Jesus says, Matthew 6, to seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, these material things that we're so worried about, so anxious about, they'll be added to us. Now, every one of us here already knows that passage. We sing that passage in song. I've alluded to it who knows how many times just in the year and a half that I've been here in different lessons in different ways. But even though we all know that, do we ever really put that into practice? To seek the kingdom of God first and to not worry about all the things of this world? If we really do that, then we'll learn one of these secrets of being content. And as Paul tells us here, back in Philippians 4, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's the next verse, number 13. Or as he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, we don't seek to please men, but God. Can we say that about ourselves? Is that our attitude? Is that our focus in life? May that same dedication be evident in our lives too. Third, finally, the last secret of contentment we want to know. Love and care for others above yourself. Paul writes back here in our context in Philippians 4 verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And that's when he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You go down to verse 14, and he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Paul thanks the church in Philippi for being so concerned about him, and not just for sending him that money that he needed, but because they were in that special relationship with him. They really loved him, and they really cared about him. He was in prison. He was sick. So they wrote to him. They sent Epaphroditus there to stay with him and to comfort him, and he tells them, your love meant so much to me. And what I suggest is that if you have someone who cares about you, someone who really loves you, someone who is concerned about you in the way that the church in Philippi was for Paul, someone who encourages you like that, that kind of relationship can enable you to say, as Paul did, I've learned to be content. So what about us this morning? Are you at peace? Are you content? If not, then won't you learn the secret of contentment from the Apostle Paul, a contentment that, as he says, comes above all else from being in Christ. Think back to our text that was read a few moments ago from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. When the Lord is with us, what do we need to fear from man? 
So if you're living discontentedly and you're not in Christ, I invite you this morning to place your trust in him, to turn to God in repentance, to be buried with Jesus in the waters of baptism and have your sins washed away, be added to his people. You don't have the promise that everything's going to go smoothly through the rest of your life, but you do have this promise that God will never abandon you. He's with you right by your side through all of that. And as Paul says, you can be content and you can do all things through him because he strengthens you. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, and you're living a discontented life because you've been looking for contentment, for meaning, for significance in all the wrong places. Whatever your need may be this morning, if you need to make changes, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.